Andrew Jackson fought in 103 duels. That's a lot of times for a president to be like, I hate you so much, one of us needs to die. <laughs> he survived all of them. Can you imagine fighting in one duel today? You've insulted me. Take it back or we duel to the death at dawn. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna take it back. <laughs> I have no interest in dueling to the death. I have no interest in waking up before dawn. a duel to the death. It Got is. It. it is. And today's been a day for my man. Part two. Part two. Part two. AJ squared away. Old Hickory. Up to bat. He's going to toss some. Well, he's going to toss some, some people around. That's for sure. But here we are to talk about, in part two, we talked about the petticoat affair and now we're going to talk specifically more in-depthly about his actual presidency andrew jackson's presidency was from 1829 to 1837 oh adam before we get started aka danger zone did you have anything you wanted to add to the first episode that we maybe didn't hit on you know i haven't even uh listened to the whole thing yet and i uh i know we left off at the petticoat affair mm-hmm. um we had on the 1824 election right and we went into how uh well the, that's where the mudslinging came into yeah and like, like how everything uh like a lot of the jackson supporters were calling it rigged whatnot because of the uh shady door deal uh, yeah there was there was some incredibly toxic press that ran specifically against John Quincy Adams and uh, the man who would, in the Electoral College, decide 
that even with the popular vote, which we've heard before in our time, even though Jackson had the popular vote, the vote that the common man cast, the Electoral College decided on John Quincy Adams. Yeah, they, uh, well, Congress uh, voted voted for Adams. They, they uh, invoked the 12th Amendment. So, uh, the House, I should say. The 12th. Uh, okay. When yeah. we get up to 12, are, are we just wiping our buns with that stuff? I mean, come on, folks. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah, we covered all that. We went through that because we're talking about petticoat fair. That was the first, first, uh, first real like, I guess, scandal of the Andrew Jackson presidency. <clears throat> so indeed, yeah. No, we're we're good. I'm good. We're roll it, man. Go into the all right. Well, big stuff. We're gonna get into his presidency now. So Jackson arrived in Washington, D.C. on February 11th and began forming his cabinet. He chose Martin Van Buren as Secretary of State, John Eaton as Secretary of War, Samuel D. Ingham as Secretary of Treasury, John Branch as Secretary of Navy, John Berrien as Attorney General, and William T. Berry as Postmaster General. Jackson was inaugurated on March 4th, 1829. Adams, who was embittered by his defeat, refused to attend. Where have we heard that before? I don't know, man. Time's a flat circle and everything just keeps repeating, brother. <laughs> I'm getting tired of this shit. Anyway, so Jackson became the first president elect to take the oath of office on the east portico of the U.S. Capitol. In his inaugural address, he promised to protect the sovereignty of the states, or respect the limits of the presidency, reform the government by removing disloyal and competent appointees, and observe a fair policy toward Native Americans. Jackson invited the public to the White House, which was promptly overrun by well-wishers who caused minor damage to its furnishings. The spectacle earned him the nickname King Mob. I mean, with a populist president, it tends to be a thing that there'll be a King Mob in place. You see, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, when you get a popular guy... A lot of people want to be cool. And sometimes being cool is doing stupid shit. Like joining a frat or something. Did you ever have to go to any sort of hazing in the college world? I know in the service they assume we all get like drink a, drink a bunch of people's semen and shit on a boat. But I'm just saying. I don't think, I don't think we had to do any of that. No, I didn't have to do shit in college because I wasn't a, a little frat boy. You gotta, you know, I went to I went to college after we got out of the Navy, so it was uh, I was twenty four, and I was in college for six years. So I graduated my master's in program when I was thirty. I didn't have to. I was a I was an older college student. I didn't have time for all that break uh, bull honky and bullshit. I know you. Yeah. And I I don't think we had to do anything like that in the Navy either. I think we fucked with each other a lot, but... 
I don't think there was any like serious hazing. What was what's the craziest prank you've ever done? And if you can't think of it right now, maybe throw it in in the episode. But I I'm just curious. Like there should be a we there should be a history of hazing, aka like you know frat nonsense, tomfoolery. But yeah. it'd be fun to do something like that. I'm I can't even think of like I know I tried to prank my dad one time, but I can't remember what it was. It was probably something stupid, like I glued his Bible shut, which is stupid anyways, but... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a big prankster. Um, I mean, we do little stupid things. Like, here's the thing, like, me and my dad and Jake, like, when we're playing darts, this was back then, but, like, we're down in the basement, we're throwing darts, we're drinking, we're having a good time, right? And so, like, the fun thing that we used to do, it was so fucking funny, especially when you're half in the bag and you're just with your buddies... Um, we would poke little, you know, dart holes in their beers. And, you know, so you're just like, you know, shooting the shit and, you know, you're drinking and they don't know, but the beer's just like spitting out the dart hole onto their chest and they're like chugging. Dude, and it's so fucking funny when it happens. Because they set the beer down and they got this big beer spot on their chest. It's so funny, dude. It's, it's, do that when you're playing darts and you're having a good time and you got some cocktails in you. That's a pretty great prank. I mean, I mean, you could even do that on somebody just drinking a soda pop, too. But, like, yeah, like, totally. That's That's fun because it's like... Who's going to get that upset at that? It's not like you're, like, pantsing them in front of a girl or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> there was one time, real quick, there was one time that I did it to my dad, and he saw the hole because I put it on the lip of the of the uh, beer can, and he saw it. So he was like, oh, I thought you were pretty smart there. And he put, you know, he put his thumb over the hole, and he didn't realize I put one below it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, like, talking shit, like, oh, you suck, you can't get me. And so he starts drinking, and it starts coming out of the other hole, just like all over his front of his chest. Oh, it's funny, man. Funny. If you guys like Danger Zone, Danger Zone's dad's just as, as, as he's kind of like a Yosemite Sam, but from upstate New York, if you get my drift. That's a good, uh, yeah, my dad is like Yosemite Sam. He's Basically. Just like a, a, Entire nation just at the bottom of your driveway stuck. Throwing his hat on the ground and stomping on it. Um, anyway, side tangent there. Write to zanzizipodcast at gmail.com and tell us your practical joke slash hazing story. Jackson believed that Adams' administration had been corrupt and he initiated investigation into all executive departments. These investigations revealed that $280,000 equivalent to $7.7 million in 2022 was stolen from the Treasury. They also resulted in a reduction in costs to the Department of Navy, saving $1 million equivalent to $27.5 million in 2022. Jackson asked Congress to tighten laws on embezzlement and tax evasion, and he pushed for an improved government accounting system. This guy was not pro-big government. In fact, he wasn't pro-cash, which is why it's ironic that he dons his mug on a $20 bill. Um, We'll get to that in the banks more later. Now, here's where we really got to get into it about Native Americans and Jackson. Jackson's presidency marked the beginning of a national policy of Native American removal, and this is according to Andrew Jackson on Wikipedia. 
Before Jackson took office, the relationship between the southern states and the Native American tribes who lived within their boundaries was strained. The states felt that they had full jurisdiction over their territories. The Native tribes saw themselves as autonomous nations that had a right to the land they lived on. And I want to say at this time, given the influence, we'd been there roughly 200 years at this point, the Native American tribes did try to coalesce with the European settlers, the, the colonial towns, if you will. Uh, they would, you know, adhere to their dressing standards, coats, boots, hats, things like that. They would, you know, in some cases... European settlers would marry into Native American families, like taking a, you know, little feather hand in marriage and performing ceremonies, say, in a traditional European marriage ceremony, if you will. The... It was more common, I will say, that, say, a male would, would marry a young squaw, if you will, uh, the female to male, I didn't see a lot of that, if at all, in the history books. Um, in the first days of Jackson's presidency, some southern states passed legislation extending state jurisdiction to Native American lands. Jackson supported the state's rights to do so. Remember how I had said he was raised to believe them to be savages. His mother did not like Native Americans, and a lot of times those fundamentals, the foundation of who people are, comes through in their childhood, and it does not go away. You can try to you can try to talk, diplomacy, you can sit, and, and Jackson, to his credit, I mean, there was a story I read, uh, listened to on a podcast specifically about a man who literally rode into town and wanted, according to his rights, wanted to meet the president. And even though Jackson, who was, you know, constantly yelling and running around and drooling on himself and fighting a tapeworm for dominance in his lower intestine, came to really sit and have a discussion with this man who waited for an hour at the White House and just said, I want to meet the president. And he said, okay. And they sat and they literally had sandwiches and talked for like an hour. Sat and talked to the president of the United States, which, I mean, different times, be great to get an audience with the president, but at the same time, do you really know who you're talking to? Which corporation are you owned by? Are the aliens in your brain, man? I don't know. I'm living in a they live world. So it's hard for me when the government basically just said aliens are real in the last year. And meanwhile, we can't stop focusing on who Pete Davidson is dating. So whatever. I tend to turn to my history books for my knowledge or my times, if you will. Uh, But continuing on, this this is really going to start to ramp up in the Indian Removal Act. Um, 
In the area known as the Southwest, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminoles began to adopt white culture, as I said. This also included education, agricultural techniques, a road system, and rudimentary manufacturing. In the case of the tensions between the state of Georgia and the Cherokee, Adams had tried to address the issue, encouraging Cherokee immigration west of the Mississippi through financial incentives, but most refused. Um, I'm just going to be real here, folks, and I'm not taking a political side, but again, this if even if you were born like I was in 1982, this probably sounds somewhat familiar to what you grew up with when it came to, I don't know, African Americans or maybe Hispanic people. Um, whites tend to move in. I'm just saying, I'm not saying what political side I lean. I'm saying for a fact, white people move in and we push minorities out. <laughs> it sucks. And even though, yes, we have, we try to have racial, uh, we try to have people together. We try to push together and, and by all statistics I've read, some of the happiest places in the world are integrated, okay? I know that probably maybe is making somebody shout like Yosemite Sam himself in their car listening to that, but it's true, okay? I'm just saying let's all just get along. All right, anyway. So, in the like I said, he passed this legislation... Extending state jurisdiction to Native American lands, Jackson supported the state's rights to do so. His position was later made clear in the 1832 Supreme Court test case of this legislation, Worcester versus Georgia. Georgia had arrested a group of missionaries for entering Cherokee territory without a permit. But God doesn't need a permit, okay? He goes where he goes. God's on Mars and he's in Michigan. Just saying. But Georgia had arrested a group of missionaries from entering Cherokee territory. The Cherokee declared these arrests illegal. The court under Chief Justice John Marshall decided in favor of the Cherokee imposition of Georgia law on the Cherokee was unconstitutional. Horace Greeley alleges that when Jackson heard the ruling, he said... Well, John Marshall has made his decision, but now let him enforce it. Although the quote may be apocryphal, Jackson made it clear he would not use the federal government to enforce the ruling. Jackson used the power of the federal government to enforce the separation of indigenous tribes and whites. In May 1830, Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which Congress had narrowly passed. It gave the president the right to negotiate treaties to buy tribal land in the eastern part of the United States in exchange for land set aside for Native Americans west of the Mississippi, as well as broad dis discretion on how to use the federal funds allocated to the negotiations. The law was supposed to be a voluntary relocation program, but it was not implemented as one. Jackson's administration often achieved agreement to relocate through bribes, fraud, and intimidation, and the leaders who signed the treaties often did not represent the entire tribe. The relocations could be a source of misery, too. The Choctaw relocation was rife with corruption, theft, and mismanagement that brought great suffering to that people. 
1830, Jackson personally negotiated with the Chickasaw, who quickly agreed to move. In the same year, Choctaw leaders signed the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. The majority did not want the treaty, but complied with its terms. In 1832, Seminole leaders signed the Treaty of Payne's Landing, which stipulated that the Seminoles would move west and become part of the Muskegee Creek Confederacy if they found the new land suitable. Most Seminoles refused to move, leading to the Second Seminole War in 1835 that lasted six years. Members of the Muskegee Creek Confederacy ceded their land to the state of Alabama in the Treaty of Casta of 1832 or Cassetta, sorry. Their private ownership of the land was to be protected, but the federal government did not enforce this. The government did encourage voluntary removal until the Creek War of 1836, after which almost all Creek were removed to Oklahoma Territory. In 1836, Cherokee leaders ceded their land to the government by the Treaty of New Dakota. Their removal, known as the Trail of Tears, was enforced by Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren, eighth president of the United States. He was also nice to Peggy Eaton. (laughs) Jackson also applied the removal policy in the Northwest. He was not successful in removing the Iroquois Confederacy in New York, but when some members of the uh, Muscawi and the Sauk triggered the Black Hawk War by trying to cross back to the east side of the Mississippi, the peace treaties ratified after their defeat reduced their lands further. And this, well, I mean, it's just a through line with things. Um... This was a horrible, horrible uh, event mm-hmm. in our history. Uh, I mean, if we, they Congress narrowly, but they passed it. Uh, I got the vote. The House was one hundred one to ninety-seven, and the Senate was twenty-eight to nineteen. Um, but they passed this act that, I mean, and it's in the name of the act: Indian removal. Like it is, uh, I, I can't even comprehend Congress today passing a bill that removes <clears throat> an entire an entire yeah an entire people and not only remove them but uh, you know they were there mm-hmm. long before we came along the Europeans came along so it's just <clears throat> this was a this was a horrible horrible act of Congress um, Jackson given his history, uh, was all about it. His when he came into the presidency, uh, getting the natives to move from these lands was a top legislative priority for him. And mm-hmm. you know he 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 negotiated this act, uh, and he <clears throat> got a lot of people to vote for it. And it's uh, it's just it's just it's horrific. It's a blemish on the history of the United States of America. I mean, where I find and I take a lot of pride in the fact that we came to a new land and we had a fresh start, a blank page, a new beginning, if you will, in the Revolutionary War, a.k.a. our first civil war, which is the name of the book that was written by H.W. Brands, who I reference quite a bit when I talk about specifically this era or even Rise to Rebellion, the Shahara book, Um, you know, I, I... Love my country, I do, but I will call it out left and right for its bullshit. Just like you should any one of your friends, your family, anybody. You got to be honest about these things, folks. And like I said, this, you know, 
this was not like, or I'm sorry, not like I said, like Adam said, this was a real big bullshit era. And it's no wonder we let this led right into the Civil War, things like this. Like, this is just an extra spice to throw in there for people to be like, well, you know, like we've we've consistently been so crappy about things. Like, of course, this is, you know, it's, I understand a lot of things don't happen unless a lot of gray area is involved. You know, things, atrocities like the Holocaust Unit 731 lead to a lot of medical breakthroughs, things that we wouldn't have seen had we not be, become such monsters. But when we have blood on our hands, it's important to know where the blood came from. It's important, even more important to take in the fact that we got to these places. But anyway, uh, during his administration, he made about 70 treaties with American Indian tribes. He had removed almost all the Native Americans east of the Mississippi, Mississippi and south of Lake Michigan. About 70,000 people from the U.S., though it was done at the cost of thousands of Native American lives lost because of the unsanitary conditions and epidemics arising from this, their dislocation, as well as their resistance to expulsion. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, there were those tribes of people who just sat there and were like, well, we'll see what they do. And then they came there and were like, go. Like, literally, white people bought their homes or the areas of their lands while they were there and just took over. Like, that was kind of like that literally those places went up for sale and like dudes would just thumb through the paper after looking at a picture of Andrew Jackson beating back you know the Brits in the Battle of New Orleans and then they'd be like oh you see this Sally look at how cheap we can get this plot of land this is great this is great oh what there's somebody squatting here get out of here Meanwhile, there's just, like, a whole, like, nine-people family just chilling. Like, it's been their home forever, and they're being evicted. And you want to talk about things, like, that we've covered before, the Donner Party. This is just as grim, you know? Because, uh, yeah, they know the land, but that, but they're, like, they've lived there forever. And they're you, taking into the fact that the sorrow, the... The fact that some of these Native American tribes fought with Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans during this whole thing, you know, they chose to stay where they were from and they were hoping and then inevitably they have no voice with these people who just, and it's, the more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the more rage filled you can get because yeah. it is frustrating. So I don't know. I don't ultimately research this stuff, folks, because it's important to know. It's important to know the truth. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the Donner Party, and I actually had a little comment to myself to uh, not, not even it's not even a close comparison, but it, the 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 Donner Party, you know, walking across the country and you know all the hell that they went through. Now multiply that by Many tens of thousands mm -hmm. of people just walking across the country from Georgia to Oklahoma, you know, thousand mm -hmm. miles, 1100 miles barefoot through the mountains, through the snow, through the, you know, 
<clears throat> it just was horrible. And, you know, just thousands of people perished on this trek. And it was hell on earth. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Jackson was behind it. You know, he was the, it was, he was the catalyst for this whole thing. And, you know, there's this has to do with his legacy. Like, yeah, there's some things that he did that we praise, you know, as a country, you know, and historical uh, significance. But there are things like this, the Trail of Tears, which is a huge uh, black spot on his presidency. And uh, it's just horrible. It's horrible what we did. True. All right. Now that we've bummed everybody out, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep learning and and churning and burning. Jackson had to confront another challenge that had been building up since the beginning of his first term, the tariff of eighteen twenty eight, which had been passed in the last year of Adams' administration, set a protective tariff at a very high rate to prevent the manufacturing industries in the northern states from having to compete compete with lower priced imports from Britain. The tariff reduced the income of southern cotton planters. It propped up consumer prices, but not the price of cotton, which had severely declined in the previous decade. Immediately after the tariff's passage, the South Carolina exposition and protest was sent to the U.S. Senate. This document, which had been anonymously written by John C. Calhoun, asserted that the Constitution was a compact of individual states, and when the federal government went beyond its delegated duties, such as enacting a protective tariff, a state had a right to declare this action unconstitutional and make the act null and void within the borders of that state. All right, so continuing on here, we get into, we're basically getting into this this tariff. Um, Jackson uh, suspected Calhoun of writing the exposition in protest and opposed his interpretation. Jackson argued that Congress had full authority to enact tariffs and that a dissenting state was denying the will of the majority. He also needed the tariff, which generated 90% of the federal revenue, to achieve another of his presidential goals, eliminating the national debt. The issue developed into a personal rivalry between the two men. For example, during a celebration of Thomas Jefferson's birthday on April 13th, 1830, the attendees gave after-dinner toasts. Jackson toasted, our federal union, it must be preserved, a clear challenge to nullification. Calhoun, whose toast immediately followed, rebutted, the union, next to our liberty, the most dear. So these guys were not cool not only that but calhoun's wife was the one that was like you know what we don't like peggy eaton screw her so there was a divide between the vice and the main pres hmm never seen that before anyways as a compromise jackson supported the tariff of 1832 which reduced the duties from the tariff of 1828 by almost half. The bill was signed on July 9th, but failed to satisfy extremists on either side. On November 24th, South Carolina had passed the Ordinance of Nullification, declaring both tariffs null and void and threatening to secede from the U.S. if the federal government tried to use force to collect the, the duties. 
In response, Jackson sent warships to Charleston Harbor and threatened to hang any man who worked to support nullification or secession. On December 10th, he issued a proclamation against the nullifiers, condemning nullification as contrary to the Constitution's letter and spirit, rejecting the right of secession, and declaring that South Carolina stood on the brink of insurrection and treason. On December 28th, Calhoun, who had been elected to the U.S. Senate, resigned as vice president. Wow. Resignation by a vice. Jackson asked Congress to pass a force bill authorizing the military to enforce the tariff. It was acted, or I'm sorry, it was attacked by Calhoun as despotism. Meanwhile, Calhoun and Clay began to work on a new compromise tariff. Jackson saw it as an effective way to end the confrontation, but insisted on the passage of the force bill before he signed. On March 2nd, he signed into law the force bill and the tariff of 1833. The South Carolina Convention then met and rescinded its nullification ordinance, but nullified the force bill in a final act of defiance. Two months later, Jackson reflected on South Carolina's nullification, saying, quote, the tariff was only the pretext and disunion and Southern Confederacy the real object. The next pretext will be the Negro or slavery question. Hmm. Yeah, this was a um this is like direct uh contrast to the way he treated the Supreme Court decision in Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, in that instance, he was all about <clears throat> states' rights, right? Georgia had the right to make these laws to, you know, move people out of their state so you know they could, you know, whatever go find all the gold they want in the mountains with nullification South Carolina didn't have the right to nullify federal law right so this is the um, I'm trying to look for a word I can't find it but this is the this is the um, uh, the dilemma with Jackson is how powerful the federal government should be and in the case of the nullification crisis he utilized the federal government and its military, um, the threat of, you know, just destroying a rebellion, mm-hmm. flat out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he, South Carolina eventually caved, but it just, um, it's just funny to see how the uh, the difference, the way he, the way he went about uh, certain uh, events during his presidency. In one instance, he was for a weak federal government states rights and in other cases he was for a strong federal government and the states need to live and die by what the federal government says basically <laughs> so it's it's just a it's such of a, a, a well it's a game of like there there's there's just this part that's like i don't know i mean it, for me it always seems like it's it depends it depends on what is at stake in most of the cases of these leader guys, these presidents, these guys meant to preside over everyone. Well, yeah, you're right. Because in Georgia, you know, they had to gain land and the resources of that land. In South Carolina, if they seceded, then he would lose an entire state with probably many to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the this is the thing going back to what I was saying like a couple minutes ago. It's like 
he did things that were of great value in uh, a historical lens for the United States. I mean, he, this was a point prior to the Civil War that could have easily become a civil war. Right. And, um, you know, and he and he uh, he put his foot down and, and uh, South Carolina relented. But um, and regardless, know, was, regardless of his position, he influenced a young Southern or not young Southern, a young Illinois senator as well. Is that who, Abraham Lincoln? Yep. <laughs> I'm just saying he he played his role and in, in some of what Lincoln said says later on is influenced by these tenements, these these actions. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um now we're gonna get to the banks. Um I, I meant I my button is green there that I hit for the wah wah wah. And I, in my head, I wanted it to be the cha-ching money sound, but no, no dice. I guess that would be like this. Money! Um, a few weeks after his inauguration, Jackson started looking into how he could replace the second bank of the United States. The bank had been chartered by President Madison in 1816 to restore the U.S. economy after the War of 1812. Monroe had appointed Nicholas Biddle who looks just like a big old nerd. Um, he looks like a like a Scrooge to me. And his last name's Biddle. It makes me just want to smack him already. Um, Monroe had appointed Nicholas Biddle as the bank's executive. The bank was a repository for the public's monies, or the country's, which also serviced the national debt. It was formed as a for-profit entity that looked after the concerns of its shareholders. In 1828, the country was prosperous and the currency was stable, but Jackson saw the bank as a fourth branch of government run by an elite, what he called the money power that sought to control the labor and earnings of the real people who depend on their own efforts to secede, the planners, farmers, mechanics, and laborers. Additionally, Jackson's own near bankruptcy in 1804 due to credit-fueled land speculation had biased him against paper money and toward a policy favorable to hard money. In his first annual address in December 1829, Jackson openly challenged the bank by questioning its constitutionality and the soundness of its money. Jackson's supporters further alleged that it gave preferential loans to speculators and merchants over artisans and farmers, that it used its money to bribe congressmen and the press, and that it had ties with foreign creditors. Biddle responded to Jackson's challenge in early 1830 by using the bank's vast financial holding to ensure the bank's reputation, and his supporters argued that the bank was the key to prosperity and stable commerce. By the time of the 1832 election, Biddle had spent over 250000 equivalent to $7.3 million in 2022 in printing pamphlets, lobbying for pro-bank legislation, hiring agents, and giving loans to editors and congressmen. On the surface, Jackson and Biddle's positions did not appear irre- irrecon- uh, irreconcilable. 
Jackson seemed open to keeping the bank if it could include some degree of federal oversight, limit its real estate holdings, and have its property subject to taxation by the states. Many of Jackson's cabinet members thought a compromise was possible. In 1831, Treasury Secretary Louis McLean told Biddle that Jackson was open to chartering a modified version of the bank, but Biddle did not consult Jackson directly. Privately, Jackson expressed opposition to the bank. Publicly, he announced that he would leave the decision concerning the bank in the hands of the people. Biddle was finally convinced to take open action by Henry Clay who had decided to run for president against Jackson in the 1832 election. Biddle would agree to seek renewal of the charter two years earlier than scheduled. Clay argued that Jackson was in a bind. If he vetoed the charter, he would lose the votes of his pro-bank constituents in Pennsylvania, but if he signed the charter, he would lose his anti-bank constituents. After the recharter bill was passed, Jackson vetoed it on July 10, 1832, arguing that the country should not surrender the will of the majority to the desires of the wealthy. That's a big moment. Um, Because essentially, it's like telling the Swiss bank accounts of all these rich fucks, like vetoing it, saying, no, no, that doesn't work anymore here. Um, Yeah, get your money out of there. Yeah. Essentially, this was a big fuck you to the, the, the wealthy at the time. Again, and I said it on the previous episode, points Jackson. I'll give him points here because it's like there's one thing that's going to stop Jeff Bezos from taking his drone helicopter to Venus to bang supermodels for the weekend. It's going to be stopping his line of credit. And uh, I appreciate this shot out there. If not, if it if it's not really theoretically gonna do anything, at least it's a sign, and actions speak louder than words. And in this case, he made it known. Now, speaking of elections, we're gonna get into the election of 1832. The 1832 presidential election demonstrated the rapid development of political parties during Jackson's presidency. Democratic Party's first national convention held in Baltimore nominated Jackson's choice for vice president Martin Van Buren. The National Republican Party, which had held its first convention in Baltimore earlier in December 1831, nominated Clay, now a senator from Kentucky and John Sargent of Pennsylvania, an anti-Masonic party with a platform built around opposition to Freemasonry, supported neither Jackson nor Clay, who were both who both were Masons. The party nominated William Wirt of Maryland and Amos Elmaker of Pennsylvania. In addition to the votes Jackson would lose because of the bank veto, Clay hoped that Jackson's Indian Removal Act would alienate voters in the East, but Jackson's losses were offset by the act's popularity in the West and Southwest. So see, that Indian Removal Act made people want to vote for him. Again, Blemish, folks. What the fuck? But you know what? I, you know, we live in a time where misinformation is so prevalent. It's, it's crazy. But I can't even imagine what the equivalent of Infowars was during this time. It was probably some fucking drunk 
local guy who just wanted to blame everything and everyone for his problems. Oh, yeah. He had to fucking uh, print pamphlets, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the only way to get the word out, the word around. Um, yeah, I don't know. In addition to the votes, Jacqueline will lose because of the bank veto. Like I said, he wanted Clay. He was hoping that the Indian Removal Act would alienate voters in the East. Um, Jackson had vetoed the Maysville Road Bill, which funded an upgrade of a section of the National Road in Clay's state of Kentucky. Jackson had argued it was unconstitutional to fund internal improvements using national funds for local projects. Oh, God. But it was really, you know, it was stomping on each other's toes, getting in each other's heads. It's like, where are you from? Hmm, Springfield, Illinois. Sounds like uh, it's time to cut off uh, sewer systems. Hope you like the smell of your own shit, Bubba. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it, it, yeah. And the the thing is about, about this election was it was so it wasn't even close. Right. I mean, it was it was a we say landslide. It was a landslide for sure. Um, right. Jackson uh, destroyed Clay in the electoral vote, 219 to 49, and the popular vote was 54 to 37%. If you, you know, those kinds of numbers in a presidential election don't happen very often, usually very close. Um, But yeah, he he wrecked Clay. Mm hmm. And yeah, it's just, man. I don't and, know. And realistically, after he did that veto, I mean, he saw this as a huge win. When he wins this election, he saw this victory as a mandate to continue the war on the banks. In 18- oh, yeah, for sure. It was a free pass. Yeah. In 1833, Jackson signed an executive order ending the deposit of treasury receipts in the bank. When Secretary of the Treasury McLean refused to ex- execute the order, Jackson replaced him with William Duane who also refused. Jackson then appointed Roger B. Taney as acting secretary who implemented Jackson's policy. With the loss of federal deposits, the bank had to contact its credit. Biddle used this contraction to create an economic downturn in an attempt to get Jackson to compromise. He's like, oh, you want to take my money? I'm Biddle, and I'm getting real mad. Stomp, 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 stomp. I'm going to go punch a fucking wall. This is funny to me because Jackson's actions led those who disagreed with him to form the Whig Party. And I just like thinking of people in powdered wigs, huffing and puffing and being like, we're the Whig Party or we're the guys that wear shoes on our hands party. I don't know. It just seemed silly to me. They claimed to oppose Jackson's expansion of executive power, power calling him King Andrew I, and naming their party after the English Whigs who opposed the British monarchy in the 17th century. So really, again, like we walk a weird balance between opposing and approving of what this man did. Uh... I kind of like that idea because it, to me, represents a similar thing with a certain, I don't know, tea party, I'll say. 
idealistically, maybe. My only Rad Dad's opinion, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Prove me wrong. Email zanzizipodcast at gmail.com. That's fine. Oh, you're going to get a bunch of hate mail from uh, Sarah Palin fans. It's okay. She's a very pretty woman. Anyway, in March 1834, the Senate censured Jackson for inappropriately taking authority for the Treasury Department when it was responsibility of Congress and refused to confirm Taney's appointment as Secretary of the Treasury. In April, however, the House declared that the bank should not be rechartered by July... 1836, the bank no longer held any federal deposits. Jackson had federal funds deposited into state banks, friendly to the administration's policies, which critics called pet banks. The number of these state banks more than doubled during Jackson's administration and investment patterns changed. The bank, which had been the federal government's fiscal agent, invested heavily in trade and financially and financed integral interreg... I'm sorry interregional, financed interregional and international trade, these pet banks. State banks were more responsive to state governments and invested heavily in land development, land speculation, and state public work projects. In spite of the efforts of Tanny's successor, Levi Woodbury, to control them, the pet banks expanded their loans, helping to create a speculative boom in the final years of Jackson's administration. In January 1835, Jackson paid off the national debt, the only time in U.S. history that it had been accomplished. It was paid down through tariff revenues, carefully managing federal funding of internal improvements like roads and canals and the sale of public lands. Between 1834 and 1836, the government had an unprecedented spike in land sales. At its peak in 1836, the profits from land sales were 8 to 12 times higher than a typical year. During Jackson's presidency, 63 million acres of public land about the size of the state of Oklahoma was sold. After Jackson's team uh, term expired in 1837, a Democratic majority Senate expunged Jackson's censure. So, go ahead. No, you go. No, I was just going to say, like, so the, uh, the fact that we had a national debt 40 years into our country that being paid off was a big thing uh and it hasn't happened again since it's just it goes to show you that a capitalist system is built on debt and will always be built on debt so if you have debt you're doing a good job in the capitalist system everybody (laughs) well then we have this back ass words uh credit score it's not even like it's (laughs) Yeah, you need it to be eight oh eight ten. Like, where? Who? Came, first of all, who came up with these numbers? And then, how Alan does it? Greenspan. Okay, well, interesting. And then it goes no, it down when you don't have credit cards open, but then when you pay them off, it goes down, or it goes up, or if you check your credit score, it goes down, or if you have multiple credit cards out and you're but you're paying them, it goes up. This is fucking shoots and ladders, Candyland horse shit that we've been adopting forever. I don't know who benefits from it. Probably the people who own the banks. The bankers still. benefit from the shit. <laughs> Fuck the banks. All right. It's like fucking Batman 
when they take all the rich folks and they do the uh, the trial and they make them walk across the fucking icy river. Mm-hmm. You think Andrew Jackson would have been a crypto bro? Um, if he was alive today. I think all the, the Whig Party members would have secretly <laughs> been crypto bros. Well, I, you know, thinking about this, right? So uh, Jackson was, <clears throat> he didn't like the idea of a central bank. Right. The idea of crypto is decentralization. Mm-hmm. There's no control over it. There's no regulation over it. And it just kind of, I guess, regulates itself. And so I was just thinking, he, you know, without a central bank, Jackson would probably, you know, be in favor of uh, alternate currencies. Yes. And especially, you know, he, and you'll probably already have a bullet or two for this, but the fact that he didn't like paper money, um, <clears throat> you know, he liked gold, silver. True. Was, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, no, he, you know, trying to set it back to that gold and silver standard based on, like, his time basically being into, like, land speculation. And, you know, these guys who, like, having a plantation himself and and slaves, uh, it's interesting how when they had all this slave labor, they saw themselves as, like, you know, blue collar in a way. Uh, sorry, but you have a sl- you have slaves and you have your own private business, and the slaves are what are making the product, and you're reaping the benefits. So I don't know how blue collar that is. I don't know how nine to five that is. Um, but okay, old Hickory. Okay. Um, let's get into his. Big moment when it came to him being the first president to be subjected to both a physical assault and an assassination attempt. On May 6th, 1833, Robert B. Randolph struck Jackson in the face with his hand because Jackson had ordered Randolph's dismissal from the Navy for embezzlement. Jackson declined to press charges. While Jackson was leaving the U.S. Capitol on January 30th, 1835, Richard Lawrence, an unemployed house painter from England, aimed a pistol at him, which misfired. Lawrence pulled out a second pistol, which also misfired. Check your guns, bro. This fucking poor guy. He just wanted to do it, and he couldn't get either of his pistols to fire. That has got to be the biggest blue balls in the history. The first assassination attempt ever, and it was two fucking duds. He scoped himself when he did this. He straight up... I mean, Jackson attacked him, too. That's the crazy part. In fact, his own Secret Service, or the equivalent of, had to pull him off because he was just like... Was he beating him with his hickory cane? Basically, yeah, he attacked this guy, Lawrence. Uh, They had to restrain Lawrence as well, but... on, and, and what's even crazier is after this uh, double fucking flounder with his two pistols like misfiring and the attack on him by Jackson being restrained, this dude was found not guilty by reason of insanity and he was totally institutionalized. And in 18 fucking 1835 when this happened, I can't imagine the 
I mean, this is back before it was even called the loony bin. I'm sure this was like for a house painter spending his life smelling paint. You know that shit's not regulated, so it's... <laughs> I'm sorry, this is a scary time to be anybody. Um, and who knows what kind of radicalization he got into when he was already insane at the time. Food for thought, folks. Slavery. During Jackson's presidency, slavery remained a minor political issue, though federal troops were used to crush Nat Turner's slave rebellion in 1831. Jackson ordered them withdrawn immediately afterwards, despite the petition of local citizens for them to remain for protection. Jackson considered the issue too divisive to the nation and to the delicate alliances of the Democratic Party. Jackson's view was challenged when the American Anti-Slavery Society agitated for abolition by sending anti-slavery tracts through the postal system into the South in 1835. Jackson condemned these agitators as monsters who should atone with their lives because they were attempting to destroy the Union by encouraging sectionalism. The act provoked riots in Charleston, South Carolina, and pro-slavery Southerners demanded that the Postal Service ban distribution of the materials. In fact, the postmaster uh, was on the, his side in this. In fact, that December, Jackson called on Congress to prohibit, prohibit the circulation through the South of incendiary publications intended to instigate the slaves to insurrection. And uh, just so you know, it is a federal crime to tamper with one's mail. Bad, bad, bad. Don't do it. And you know that. I do know more that. More than anybody. I do. I, sh- I mean, been working for the Postal Service for 15 years, folks. I know it's a thing or thing or five. Postal Service is a very important uh, part of our government and our country. And it always has been since the founding. The Postal Service has always been up there. The Postmaster has always been like right there in the damn White House cabinet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about it anymore, but back then it was a big deal. I would, I would completely agree with you. And during this time, it was definitely... A big focus, especially when we consider the fact that all the mudslinging and publicity that was used when it came to pamphlets and flyers, anything they could print was yeah, was the best way to get through to people. Yeah, and you didn't have mail confirmation back then, right? You didn't have, like, I got ad, I got the app, I got the post office app, so I can see what I'm getting before it comes in the mailbox. Yeah, and that's completely free for people who want who want that. That's a completely free service that they don't charge anything for. You can see literally in your email box every single day what your mail is that you're getting. So, that December, Jackson called on Congress to prohibit the circulation of that, and that, to me, negative points, Jackson. You can't stop the mail. Foreign Affairs, uh, the Jackson administration successfully negotiated a trade agreement with Siam, the first Asian, East Asian country to form a trade agreement with the U.S. The administration also made trade agreements with Great Britain, Spain, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. In his first annual message to Congress, Jackson addressed the issues of 
spoilation claims, demands of compensation for the capture of American ships and sailors by foreign nations during the Napoleonic Wars. Side side note, uh, in case anybody wants to know, I went and saw Napoleon, the movie, the Ridley Scott film, recently, and it was a pretty good movie. I recommend it. I would say... It's one of Ridley Scott's better movies. I like his last movie, too. The Last Duel was great, and uh, this Napoleon movie, it takes its own liberties, but, you know, for popcorn and pop moviegoers, I would say go see it. It's fun. In fact, there's a lot of things we said in the episode that you will that we did, uh, episode 29, which features Jesse from Serial Chillers. I would definitely recommend you listen to that episode, too, because we cover a lot of the things they don't. So what were you going to say? Is that is that in the theater? Mm-hmm. Right yeah, I went and saw, went and saw it, and uh, very very fun movie. I thought uh, they did a really good job showing Tulane and Waterloo in the movie too. For the guys that like wanted to hear more talk about the battle stuff, you actually get to see it. So how was um, how was Joaquin Phoenix's performance? I'll be real. Uh, Joaquin is not really even doing a French accent, which we did most of that episode have little French accents. Uh, he's just kind of like, hey, I'm Joaquin Phoenix. I am French. Time for some wine. Um, you could have played it up just a scooch, but um, yeah. Vanessa Kirby, who plays Josephine, is phenomenal. Um, and some of the character actor guys who are in it are great. So... It's good. It's a good movie. Fun. Um, All right, we're going to keep going on. So, using a combination of bluster and tact, he successfully settled these claims with Denmark, Portugal, and Spain, but he had difficulty collecting spoliation claims from France, which was unwilling to pay an indemnity agreed to in an earlier treaty. Jackson asked Congress in 1834 to authorize reprisals against French property if the country failed to make payment as well as to arm for defense. In response, France put its Caribbean fleet on a wartime footing. Interesting. Both sides wanted to avoid a conflict, but the French wanted an apology for Jackson's belligerence. In his 1835 annual message to Congress, Jackson asserted that he refused to apologize. He stated that he did not intend to menace or insult the government of France. The French were assuaged by and agreed to pay $5 million, equivalent to $141 million in 2022, to settle the claims. Since the early 1820s, large numbers of Americans have been immigrating into Texas, a territory of the newly independent nation of Mexico. As early as 1824, Jackson had supported acquiring the region for the U.S. In 1829, he attempted to purchase it, but Mexico did not want to sell. By 1830, there were twice as many settlers from the U.S. as from Mexico, leading to tensions with the Mexican government that started the Texas Revolution. Possible future episode? During the conflict, Jackson covertly allowed the settlers to obtain weapons and money from the U.S. They defeated the Mexican military in April of 1836 and declared the region an independent country, the Republic of Texas. The new republic asked Jackson to recognize and annex it. Although Jackson wanted to do so, he was hesitant because he was unsure it could maintain independence from Mexico. He also was concerned because Texas had 
legalized slavery, which was an issue that could divide the Democrats during the 1836 election. Jackson recognized the Republic of Texas on the last full on his last full day of presidency, March 3rd, 1837. And that's the Jackson presidency and Jackson leading up to the presidency. So we have a little bit more to get into about his after times. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to throw in there, sir? Nah, man. Covered it. Like I said, he had a little summer. He had a little doll of his wife who died before he got in there. Um, that he would talk to every night and he would go out to her grave site. Um, Jackson's presidency, as I said, ended on March 4th, 1837. Jackson left Washington, D.C. three days later, retiring to the Hermitage in Nashville, Tennessee, where he remained influential in national and state politics. To reduce the inflation caused by the Panic of 1837, Jackson supported an independent treasury system that would restrict the government from printing paper money and require it to hold its money in silver and gold. Silver and gold. Silver and gold. During the 1840 presidential election, Jackson campaigned for Van Buren in Tennessee, but Van Buren had become unpopular during the continuing depression. I think they changed Van Buren's name to Van Boring or something like that. There was some like newspaper like they the, he did not he he did not have a good presidency. We could probably even cover him down the line. Also, Van Buren was like I said his vice VP, so he had that going for him, and part of why I think he got elected. Um, Van Buren was depicted as an uncaring aristocrat while Harrison's war record was glorified and he was betrayed as a man of the people. That's Harrison, who we talked about in our White House Ghosts episode, who haunts the upstairs. Uh, Harrison died a month into his term and was replaced by his vice president, former Democrat John Tyler. Jackson was encouraged because Tyler was not bound to party loyalties and praised him when he vetoed two Whig party-sponsored bills to establish a new national bank in 1841. I thought they were, like, for the people, man. They want a new bank? Nefarious. Jackson lobbied for the annexation of Texas. He was concerned that the British could use it as a base to threaten the U.S. and insisted that it was part of the Louisiana Purchase. That was a hell of a purchase. Tyler signed a treaty of annexation in April 1844, but it became associated with the expansion of slavery and was not ratified. Van Buren, who had been Jackson's preferred candidate for the Democratic Party in the 1844 presidential election, had opposed annexation. Disappointed by Van Buren, Jackson convinced fellow Tennessean James K. Polk who was then set to be Van Buren's running mate to run as the Democratic Party's presidential nominee instead. Polk defeated Van Buren for the nomination and won the general election against Jackson's old enemy, Henry Clay. Meanwhile, the Senate passed a bill to annex Texas, and it was signed on March 1st, 1845. Jackson died of dropsy tuberculosis and heart failure heart failure at 78 years of age on June 8, 1845. 
He was surrounded by family and friends at his deathbed, and his last words were to them, Oh, do not cry. Be good children, and we will all meet in heaven. He was buried in the same tomb as his wife, Rachel. And that's Andrew Jackson, folks. A real guy. And anytime you want to, anytime you're like, was he real? Just pull out a fresh stack of 20s. Yeah, there he is. And it's funny to me that given how much he didn't like paper money, he is like, I, I've seen more. As a pauper myself, I've seen a lot of 20s in my day, ladies and gentlemen. I've handled quite a few. I don't see as many Benjamins as I do fucking Jacksons. At least for another six years. Oh, did my camera just bleep out? Yeah. I Sorry. There for a oh, I got it. Over. There we go. Yeah, I, for another six years or so, I think um, they're going to put Harriet Tubman on the 20. Uh, really? Yeah, that's the... that. I mean, that was... I think that started during Obama administration, but uh, and then Trump killed it, and now it's back on schedule. 2030, apparently, is when they will start printing 20s with Harriet Tubman on it. I mean, I'm all for it. They can put Jackson on something else. I don't know, like a $2 bill or something. I don't give a shit. Who's I don't money. give a flying fuck. I just want to get paid, spent. folks. Um, or pay my no, bills. But I, yeah, I mean, you know what they should do? I mean, uh, yes, Harriet Tubman, um, somebody from the abolitionist movement, um, obviously deserves that sort of recognition. But uh, Native American uh, folk might you know, be a better replacement for Andrew Jackson on the face of a 20. Just saying. How I about mean, the... He, he wasn't he wasn't moving African-Americans out. He was pushing natives out. And he, you know, it's probably the biggest stain on his legacy, his, um, his treatment and everything of the natives. So, I mean, that would be... Uh, what's the word for it? God, I suck with words today. I can't think of a shit to say, but... That would be the proper justice? Yeah, something like that. Um, not bittersweet, but something. Yeah, just uh, replacing Jackson with, uh, you know, like Tecumseh or something. <laughs> um, I mean... I, just throwing it out there. I don't I don't know if anybody from the Treasury is ever going to hear this, but you never know. <laughs> Well, there was a Native American man who saved Andrew Jackson. He fought alongside Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend during the War of 1812. In the course of battle, he saved Jackson's life. Um, his name was Jonaluska. Put him on a $20 bill. There you go. Just a thought. But, Adam, thank you for spending your Saturday afternoon with my with me and the podcast people always tell me they enjoy hearing from you about these things um it's always a pleasure you're obviously you're like a brother to me you are a brother to me um so thanks again for what's this our like fourth two-parter we've covered revolutionary war teddy roosevelt now andrew jackson 
I think there was one yeah. more. We did Ghosts of Ghosts Ghost, of the White House. We did. Um, what was the other one we did? This is our last big series of uh, uh, season one before we go into twenty twenty four. Spoiler alert! It's minor, I guess. We got some big ones, some more political themed ones coming, some more battles. So uh, put on a diaper because you're going to be having a Nicholas Biddle in your pants when you hear some of this crazy <laughs> shit. Um, but yeah, Andrew Jackson, I'm, I'm super glad we covered him. He's a fascinating president, and uh, I think he, you can see a lot of the past, or you can see a lot of the president. The past and the present, um, but uh, yeah, we'll 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 have you back on again. You're part of the crew. Uh, hang in there over there in the upstate. I think we're gonna start getting some serious snow eventually. And uh, yeah, if you guys want to check us out on Instagram, Instagram.com/slash Sanzizi Podcast. If you want to listen to our back catalog of episodes and help us out suggest an episode to a friend definitely these deep two-parter episodes uh we cover quite a bit uh i also want to say if you want to see us you can check us out on our youtube links in the description also join our discord and that is it ladies and gentlemen we will see you very soon have a great one